Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. We do a deep dive into your garden questions on this episode of Garden Basics. We attempt to identify a giant wasp in a listener's yard. A mysterious underground white fungus has another listener perplexed. And we help out people who want to attract beneficial insects and pollinators to their garden. It's all on episode 118 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. to answer your garden questions here on the garden basics podcast and don't forget if you submit your question via audio and we use it during the month of july you're going to get courtesy of the great folks at smart pots a free smart pot six foot long raised bed fabric planter two ways to contact us with your questions via audio speakpipe.com slash garden basics or the old telephone number 916 916- 292-8964, 916-292-8964. And again, if we use your audio question during the month of July, you get a free smart pot, just like Cindy and her mystery hornet. Hi, Fred. This is Cindy from Roseville. I have a quick question for you. Um, I discovered some very large wasps in some dirt uh, between my property and the next door neighbor, a very small strip of, of proper uh, dry soil. I was weeding and suddenly these wasps pop up, but they were big, big fat guys, not yellow jackets, not anything I could identify. Looked more like cicada killers, according to my research. Anyhow, uh, I told the neighbor, and I'm sad to say they were killed. I called the uh, Placer County Integrated Pest Management. They came out and did the same, you know, re-killed them, made sure the nests were all dead. But now I have no pollinators in my garden. I, it's, I mean, they were boiling with uh, these big fat uh, hornets and they were pollinating everything. So I'm not sure what to do. I uh, look forward to hearing from, hearing your thoughts. Thank you very much. Have a great day. That was Cindy from Roseville. Very good question. The mystery wasp that's also a pollinator in her garden. And she thought it was a cicada killer. We're talking with Baldo Viegas, retired state entomologist, master rosarian. And Baldo, uh, you know your bugs. And uh, you're saying that this is a, a close relative of the cicada killer? Uh, yes, it's in the same uh, family of wasps. It's a uh, second cousin to the uh, cicada killers. It's in the genus uh, Takiti, which uh, is a predator of um, the grasshopper nymphs. Mm. So it's a beneficial insect. Uh, so don't uh, don't kill them. <laughs> well, I guess it's too late for that in Cindy's case, but she was uh, uh, telling us that it was pollinating a lot of the plants in her garden, which uh, a lot of people don't realize that, that a lot of these wasps and hornets also act as pollinators. 
Yes, uh, they're solitary wasps. Find them uh, nesting on the ground, and they uh, prey on uh, grasshoppers or grasshopper nymphs. Then uh, they they bring them into their uh, nest in the in the ground, and then they uh, they shove the several grasshopper nymphs in the ground, and then they lay an egg, and then they uh, they fly away. And so they're they're great uh, as um, as beneficial insects in the in the garden, uh, as well as being pollinators. And I would imagine they they are not that harmful to humans. No, no, no. They're um, they're totally harmless. If you grab them, they might uh, uh, give you a little sting, but their sting is totally uh, it, it it doesn't hurt. It's just like being pricked uh, with a little needle, but it doesn't last like a um, like a hornet a wasp or a uh, a honeybee or or a umbrella wasp. These things don't, uh, the venom doesn't last very long. So again, these critters that are in backyards, they may look dangerous, but in reality, many of them are garden good guys, including this relative of the cicada killer. Hey, Baldo, thanks for the great information and and drive safely. Uh, Thank you. But we haven't fully answered Cindy's question. If she has no pollinators, who can she attract to her garden? And how do you attract beneficial insects, especially the pollinators, to your backyard? Well, we talked about that on an episode last year here on Garden Basics. For a successful garden, well, you need a little bit of help. And fortunately, nature provides that assistance with a wide array of pollinating insects and birds and beneficial insects, too, that go after the garden bad guys. And that allows you to reduce the use of pesticides that you might think you need to use. But to attract those beneficials and pollinators to your yard, you have to lend them a helping hand. And that's the impetus for the new book, The Pollinator Victory Garden. It's by New York-based environmental horticulturist Kim Ironman, who's also the founder of EcoBeneficial. And she explains that small changes to our landscape can make huge environmental improvements. And she offers up a lot of great tips in the book about getting pollinators to your yard. And we're talking with Kim Ironman back in New York. And Kim, you have an interesting biography in that you left Wall Street to pursue environmental horticulture. Oh boy, Fred, you gave up my dirty little secret, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I went from one type of green to another. And um, this <laughs> were, is a better green. <laughs> were your parents were your parents bitterly disappointed? No, no. Okay. I think they were relieved. They always knew I was a nature geek. Good. All right. So you followed your heart. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Did you have like a, 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 a bell or a light go off or like I like to say a come to Jesus moment that got you back into the land? Well, I was always a, a kid who loved nature. I mean, it was just in me. Always wanted to be outdoors. Always wanted to go hiking. Always wanted to be in the woods. Um, and uh, just was something that um, was important to me. And uh, gosh, many years ago, we moved from uh, New York City, where there wasn't a heck of a lot of nature, to uh, Westchester County. Lo and behold, our house is about seven miles away from the New York Botanical Garden. Hmm. And I started to take classes, and I got really, really serious about this. So I combined my love of nature with my love of gardening and horticulture and um, developed this business, uh, eco-beneficial, to really um, to teach and um, hopefully inspire folks to garden a little bit differently to help our very, very challenged uh, environment. So when you look out your window right now, 
What's in bloom? What does your garden look like? Well, being here in the Northeast, we have a lot of those lovely woodland spring bloomers that um, are so charming. Uh, for example, we've got uh, Mertensia virginica, which is Virginia bluebells in bloom right now, which is a lovely spring ephemeral. And um, it's one of those plants that comes up before the trees leaf out and uh, feeds bees with its nectar and its pollen, and then dies back. It's ephemeral, so you can plant, you know, kind of double plant in that area. That's really a lovely one. And um, we've got uh, we've got some lovely wild geranium, which is not as m- most people think of geranium, which is a, a lovely woodland plant. Edge of the woods is usually where you find it. That's a great source for um, specific bees, mining bees that have evolved with that plant. And about 25% of our native bees in North America are pollen specialists. So planting these plants that they've evolved with, uh, in addition to generalist plants, is really an important thing to do. You bring that up in your book a lot, the book, The Pollinator Victory Garden. So let's talk about some of the tips that you offer up in the book. One of them, one of them makes perfect sense. Plant for a succession of blooms through the growing season. Mm Mm-hmm. And we may think we're doing it, but when we start to take a closer look, we may find that we've got a lot of of gaps in bloom time. So I encourage folks to start making a list of what's in bloom throughout the entire growing season. And uh, for us here in the Northeast, that's going to be early spring through late fall. Parts of California might be almost year round. Look at what's in bloom Make sure you've got at least three different plants that are in flower, whether it's trees, shrubs, vines, perennials, ephemerals, etc., that are in bloom at the same time with different floral characteristics to feed different types of pollinators. So your plant season then is what, March through early December? Um, Our season here is pretty much March through, I would say, November-ish depends i mean with climate change things um i've had things in bloom till almost the end of november which is pretty extraordinary historically speaking i was about to brag that we eat tomatoes uh, off the vine for christmas dinner there you go (laughs) (laughs) a little bit different growing condition (laughs) yes exactly all right so you've got to you've got to plant more plants because you've got to cover more months exactly yes and we do too yes in fact uh, in in our area here in california and still people get stumped as far as well what can i plant that is in bloom from November through March. And there are Mm -hmm. two plants that uh, fit that bill and they attract a whole host of pollinators. And they are rosemary and ureops. Ureops pectinatus and all the forms of rosemary uh, rosemary with their nice blue-violet flowers that that keep the native bees happy all winter long. And yeah, we'll we'll give a shout out for two of your wonderful resources in California, Calscape and Calflora, where you can find out what uh, native plants are native to your region, and um, you know make sure you're planting for the critters that evolved in your area. Well, that's also another one of your tips: include some native mm-hmm. plants to support pollinators and the ecosystem. Sure. My focus, uh, truthfully, Fred, is is uh, native plant um, very much uh, specifically. You know, all of us. Um, are entitled to a few uh, dalliances with, um, you know, non-invasive, uh, n- non-natives. But um, I think with our challenged climate uh, change situation and our environment being so degraded that we really can um, can make big differences if we focus on plants that have evolved with the wildlife around us and support our ecosystems. Yeah, and it's amazing the number of species of insects that thrive on very specific native plants. Like right now in bloom here in California is the California Dutchman's Pipe. And there's mm-hmm. 
a species of butterfly that survives solely off that plant. Right. And that's right. The, the pipe vine swallowtail butterfly. Mm-hmm. So you've got and, and you'll see that coast to coast. So that's uh, likely an Aristolochia yes. uh, species, which we have here in the east. And um, a lot of these woody plants that are native, many of them are host plants for butterfly or moth caterpillars. And um, we can really do ourselves a favor if we want more of those creatures in our landscape and support them because they're endangered too um, by having host plants uh, in addition to uh, plants that say, you know, we were buying also for flowers. And then in many cases, we have plants that do both um, both things very well. Uh, just like we are distracted while driving down the freeway at the huge neon signs that uh, are over our freeways here, uh, it's, it's true in the plant world as well, where we need, as you point out, to plant a diverse array of plants with different flower shapes, sizes, and colors, and mm-hmm. then uh, basically turn them into floral targets, if you will. Right. So there, there's a principle that I call achieving floral balance in our landscapes. That's kind of a good, um, good way to think about this. We need to have a diversity of plant species to feed different types of pollinators because not every pollinator goes to the same type of plant. And pollinators can include things from bees, butterflies, moths, flies, bats, beetles, birds. Not every species within those groups is a pollinator, obviously, but, um, but Likely, you know, if you're living in North America, you probably have pollination from almost all those creatures, except for maybe bats. And in Southern California, uh, very southern, um, in parts of the southwest, you'll see some bat pollination of sororo, cactus, and agave. But most of us can attract all these other creatures um, by planting diversely. But getting back to floral balance, we also have to plant sufficiently. And that means creating floral targets that pollinators can find easily. And uh, um, some research out of uh, University of California uh, Bee Lab at Berkeley, a uh, wonderful place, um, and California Birds and Blooms is an excellent book. I encourage folks to buy my book and buy that book, too. It's a great book. Um, so they've discovered that a target of one species of about three square feet is ideal for um, most pollinators to find. So some of us can achieve that. Um, some of us don't have landscapes that are large enough for that. And if we have a smaller landscape, you know, we can compromise a little bit and we can create repeating targets of of smaller groups of plants throughout the landscape. And even in some areas, we might want a very naturalistic um, landscape like a prairie or a meadow where we can create that erratic bloom of of plants and um Many pollinators will still find that fairly easily, and the reason for that is uh, creatures like bees, creatures like butterflies have a behavior called floral constancy, and they go on a foraging mission, and they're looking for one species of plant. So if you have a meadowscape or a periscape arrangement, they'll find what they need. Exactly. Uh, Speaking of bats, a a lot of California's farmers are now incorporating bats into their pest control methodologies by creating Mm -hmm. uh, bat habitat in order to keep them around the farm to uh, go after uh, the insect uh, population. Sure. Bats are bats like most creatures and vertebrates and vertebrates alike are in trouble um, uh, worldwide. So any help we can give them is good. Um, They're not too many species of bats that are pollinating bats um, in North America, but there there are a couple. Anyway, uh, <laughs> one of the most important tips I think you present in the Pollinator Victory Garden to win the war on pollinator decline with ecological gardening is, and boy, I've been harping on this for years, and it sure makes a lot of sense. Reduce or eliminate your lawn. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I call it the green desert. It is an ecological wasteland for creatures like bees. Um, if you allow European weeds to uh, inf- infringe upon the lawn, that's a little bit better, but it doesn't replace good, solid, native plant habitat. So um, keep the lawn that you really use if you plant on it, as your kids do, your pets do, you entertain on the lawn. Keep what you really use, lose the rest. Whenever you keep, manage it organically. No pesticides. Pesticides and pollinators are a very poor mix. Uh, even some um, some of the preparations that we use, uh, commonly use in our landscapes, even if they don't kill pollinators, they can be sublethal and weaken them significantly. Definitely. And when you uh, tear out that turf grass, uh, put in some native plants. And here in California, we always encourage drought tolerant plants, plants that don't require much water in in the big picture. And it's amazing. You put in native plants, all of a sudden you've got native bees. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And of course, California has the greatest um, diversity of native bees um, in North America. I think you have over a thousand species of native bees, which is pretty extraordinary. We Here in New York, we have about half that, a little bit less than half of that. They are very many different shapes, sizes, colors, body strength, tongue length. Um, some don't even look like bees. Uh, so let's let's try to show some uh, plant love t- for all of them. We've been talking with Kim Ironman. She's the author of the book, The Pollinator Victory Garden, Win the War on Pollinator Decline with Ecological Gardening. Kim, if people want more information about the book, where can they go? Well, please visit my website, which is ecobeneficial.com, and you can pick up the Pollinator Victory Garden at your um, local independent bookseller or any online source that you like. Uh, And I've got a lot of uh, supplemental information um, that accompanies the book on my website, including regional plant information. So please do visit. All right. Again, that website, ecobeneficial.com for more information, including those plant lists. Kim Ironman, thanks for uh, spending a few minutes with us and getting the pollinators back into our yard. Thanks so much, Fred. Appreciate you having me. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com/fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com/fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics Podcast. Joining me here in the Butylon Jungle, it's Debbie Flower, our favorite retired college horticultural professor. You see how much these butylons have grown back since I pruned them, what, yeah. two, two or three months ago? Yeah, and, and I see flower. Yeah. That's yeah. very nice. So the hummingbirds will be back soon. Mm-hmm. And off in the distance, you may see uh, the barrels. Corn. Popcorn. Yes, I planted popcorn in barrels. That's my experiment for this year, to see if I can grow popcorn in barrels in the hottest part of the yard. 
Good luck. Thank I think you. it might work, but good luck. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. My concern would be if, I mean, it's in an area of the yard where the wind has a hard time getting through. So I'm not too uh-huh. concerned about it blowing over. Uh-huh. Like most corn, if you try to grow in a raised bed, would fall over. But there's enough wind for pollination because you need wind for pollination for corn. They're planted in a circle. They, yes. yes. I can see them moving in the wind now. Okay. Well, don't scare me like that. <laughs> All right. So anyway, welcome to the Barking Dog Studio here. Thank you. Happy to be here, Fred. All right. I think the barking dogs are asleep. So we, we can continue here. We got a question from Tanya here in the Sacramento area. And she found something in her yard that looked like little white eggs. She says, a few weeks ago, I found these little egg things in one of my raised beds. Do you have any idea what they are? They sort of have a little root at one end. I put them back because I'm not sure what they are. Here's a couple of photos of them. And sure enough, they look like little white eggs that she found below her annual flowers in her garden bed. And the first thing that occurred to me was, those look kind of like nutlets from Nutsedge or Nutgrass. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. hmm, I wonder if that's what it is. You had another idea. Yeah, to me, they're a little bit big for that, for the, the nutlets. And they're pure white. Pure white was, this, I have to say, was a head scratcher. Uh, but pure white was one of the things that, that had me wondering. Nutlets from Nutsedge tend to be sort of tan colored. Uh, and I wondered, my first thought was, what else had been planted in that bed? Was this a tuber or uh, a bulb from something else. What she shows in her bed right now is is pansies and Johnny Jump Ups. Right. So she's planting ornamentals in there right now, and maybe she has in the past, and maybe this was left over from something in the past. So those are structures that are underground storage structures. They're modified stems. A tuber, a potato, a white potato is a tuber. It's a, a part of the stem that is swollen and holds plant food. That's why we eat it. We like that plant food. And if you cut into a tuber, it'll be solid like the the inside of a potato. Mm. Uh, if it's a bulb, an onion is a true bulb. If it's a bulb, then it's layers, like an onion is layers. And so if you cut into it, you'll see those layers. And those are actually modified leaves, leaves that are modified to store food again. That's why we eat onions. Uh, they don't become green. They don't grow uh, they just are there to hold food. The part of an onion that grows is uh, comes from the bottom, and that's where the s- true stem is. And it'll come up right through the center of the onion. If you've ever had one sprout in your pantry, you see that sometimes. And if you cut it open, you can see that that stem is green and it has come up. It's actually a leaf. It has come up from the stem, which is just, it's usually the part of the onion we cut off. It's a little solid core, sort of a... um, cone-shaped core at the bottom and then the roots come out of the bottom and so her pictures do show some root-like structures coming out of the bottom both the tuber and the bulb will have that and we can't see the inside so we don't know if it's got the characteristics of a tuber or a bulb but my other thought and I'm leaning more toward this one is that it's a fungus it's the fruiting body of a fungus particularly a puffball fungus. I have had puffball funguses in my yard. I often don't see them until they've already popped open. They're round, and hers are round to egg-shaped. They are white when they're young, but then they turn brown when they're older. And if you cut them open, cut them open when they're white, when they're young, you will, they may look like a mushroom on the inside, 
as they age, when you cut them open, you'll see the spores. And the spores can be brown or black. Typically, those are the ones that I have seen. So I, uh, considering it's a raised bed, funguses like to live in the kind of uh, media we use in raised beds, the very organic media. It gets regular moisture, and that will trigger the growth of puffball funguses. And it looks like from the picture of her garden that part of it may be in the shade. And if it's in shade and it's overwatered, cool, Mm -hmm. moist soil, perfect home for a puffball. Right. And there are uh, PVC arches over the top. And I suspect something has been on them, frost cloth or or, uh, some kind of grow cloth, uh, row cover. And that will reduce the sun in that location. And, and that's if you think about when we see mushrooms in the landscape, it's typically after a rain and in a very organic place and in the shade. And that, that bed has the potential to produce those conditions. I think to alleviate her concerns, we can say it safely, it's not an insect. This isn't an egg of an insect. No. no. Or a big weed. Or, yeah, right. Well, although puffballs produce many, many thousands of spores, and that's their reproductive body, their seed, so to speak. Uh, they aren't very efficient at growing from those spores, and so she's not likely to have an infestation, mm-hmm. and it's not going to hurt anything she wants to grow there. Uh, in fact, it is helping the, it, the the rest of the fungus is called mycelium, and it travels underground and consumes broken down helps break down organic matter and release nutrients to the plants. Basically, Tanya, you have a job to do, is to cut open some of these little white balls and see what's on the inside. If it looks like a potato on the inside... You have a tuber. All right. And if it's uh, layered... Then you have a bulb. And... If it, it's mushroomy. <laughs> yes. If it, yeah. If you get a lot of spores flying around. Right. That would be a fungus. Or it looks just like mushroom if it's not mature. You suggested she plant one and see what happens. And that will be interesting as well. If it is, uh, if she plants it in soilless mix and keeps it cool and, and moist, she could have a whole pot full of fungus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it, keeping it cool and moist. Yeah. That's, yes. That, that Otherwise it will die. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it, it, if you've tried that, Tanya, if you've tried planting it in a container to see what happens and you sort of set that container off to the side, it may have dried out to the point where that fungus dried out. too. Right. And that will kill it. Yeah. So in that case, I mean, do you really have to worry about this? In no, soil? not at all. If the plants are healthy, then it's not so cool and moist that plants can't grow. Right. And this is just a natural cycle. Right. Right. So, no, don't worry about it at all. All right. Be happy. Don't worry. Debbie Flower, I hope we solved the fungus question. I hope so, too. All right. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.